You're listening to the Behind Every Employer podcast, where we sit down with future-focused employers and innovators who are advancing talent development for the frontline workforce that drives business. These leaders are challenging the status quo of education, training, and delivering scalable solutions. Discussions cross the intersections of adult education, digital resiliency, training innovations, and other topics important to the new American workforce. This podcast is being sponsored by NGEN and the Coalition on Adult Basic Education. And now, here are your hosts, Anson Green and Jeffrey Abramowitz. Woohoo! Hey, Anson, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great. How's it going, Jeff? You've been jet-setting this week, huh? I, I've been jet-setting. I don't even know what time of day it is right now. I, the West Coast trips get me crazy, but uh, yeah, it's been a crazy week. I was out in L.A. this week in, in Long Beach, California, we were doing um, the Correctional Educators Association at their conference, their leadership forum this week, and uh, did two presentations that I was ultra, ultra proud of because they were really important. One was about building bridges and I talked about best practices and getting people hired um, in light of the infrastructure bill that's coming down. And then the other presentation was on um, equity in education, which is a really important topic right now, making sure that you know everyone has access to education across our country, no matter who you are. So um, I'm, I'm energized. I had a great conference, met a lot of people, saw some, a lot of passion out there and a lot of people really into education. And uh, we're getting some steam, Anson. There was a lot of people that mentioned behind every employer to me. And they, they were like, yeah, we're listening to you and Anson. And uh, they're really enjoying it. So I'm looking forward to uh, this show as always. And I'm hoping people will check us out at, at behindeveryemployer.org. You can get there on the CoWave website as well. And uh, check it out. There's some great episodes and we got so many more coming. Yeah, well, I, I'm with you. I think we really have kind of tapped into a nice market of helping those businesses out there that are really wanting some solutions on that frontline workforce, working with different populations and finding, you know, experts out there like our guests today that are doing some really innovative things. You know, uh, this week, some something that's been on my mind that uh, I, I think we can weave in today, but, uh, you know, Governor Larry Hogan in Maryland did something which uh, I thought was really bold and is really rethinking and reducing some of the degree requirements for state jobs. Uh, you know, um, I spent many years in state government. Um, our guest actually today did also. And I do definitely remember like seeing these job descriptions where um, we just all looked around the table wondering why a BA was required for a job like this. And we were, you know, not, you know, getting some of the talent we wanted uh, and that would probably had great work history due to those kind of degree requirements. And, you know, for me, it, it translates back into things that we see also in higher education. You know, I worked at Alamo Colleges in San Antonio and, and worked in the community college realm quite a bit. And, uh, you know, we would often see degree requirements uh, or entry requirements for degrees or credentialed programs that were higher um, for a program than what was needed and required by the business community. So you'd see a you know high school education requirement for a training position where high school education was not required in the industry. Um, and things like that. So I'm, I'm really um, happy to see a governor taking the lead like that. You know, that's uh, that, that it takes a governor to change a bureaucracy for sure uh, that quickly. And uh, maybe that's something maybe we'll talk about today with our guests, because um, I, I think it's just something we've really got to work on is matching what work requires 
with what our educational institutions um, that we, we all work in, um, what they require and trying to find that kind of medium there, that that connectivity. But let me answer, answer, yeah. It's funny, I posted on it this week when I saw that come out and yeah. my post was really simple. It was like uh, one down, 49 to go. So yeah. we need to we need to get out there and our governors need to follow the lead and, and really start making that happen. So it's yeah, well, you just don't see stuff like that from governors. I mean, they've been, you know, rightly, you know, you know really uh, focused, laser focused on so many things this year. But that seems to be a really good one. Of course, it's going to open up the 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 spigots of uh, hiring and they probably have some hiring shortages in state government, too. So I think that's a win win on multiple sides for the uh, folks in Maryland. Um, so let's move on. I want to tell you about our guest. Uh, we have a, a real rock star today with us. Um, Vontan Quinlan is really a nationally recognized thinker and a doer in workforce development. And I really think of her as kind of a catalyst for economic mobility and higher education. Uh, she has a distinguished career. And what really strikes me uh, and what drew me to kind of bringing her on and, and, and some other things about her, she's got a book out that I want to talk about, a podcast. But uh, I, I really communicate and, and kind of see a, a lot of parallels uh, for me because she's worked in the public sector, in colleges, at the leadership level, in government, in California, private sector, and now in the nonprofit sector. And I think that's, you know, kind of what we're doing on this podcast is bringing those worlds together. Uh, Vaughn does a great job uh, of really being a, a leader in this area, in the healthcare area. She's currently the CEO of Futura Health, which is a nonprofit with a mission to improve the health and wealth of communities by growing the largest network of credentialed allied health workers in the nation. So um, we're going to talk a lot about health again. We had uh, Jackie Barant on uh, a couple of episodes back who was also in healthcare, and we just see that as such a, a, a growing area of interest with our business community on how to upskill workers and how to find talent in our healthcare uh, area, which just impacts so many areas of our economies and also of our workforce. Ravon's resume is super compelling too. It's as compelling as it is deep. Um, she's an appointee of Governor Newsom to the Healthcare Workforce and Education and Training Council. Council. Um, formerly, she was Executive Vice Chancellor of the Community College System um, in uh, California and is quoted all over the place. New York Times, Chronicle of Higher Education, uh, you name it, Stanford Business Review, U.S. News Report. So uh, this is a really star-studded uh, individual we're happy to have here today. Um, I, like I mentioned, she's got a best-selling book called Workforce Rx, um, and uh, that is something we're going to really focus on today, the inclusive and agile strategies for employers, educators, and workers during unsettled times. Uh, I got this thing on, on a while back and, and uh, couldn't put it down. And then she's got a, a podcast to go with that. So I'm real happy to have uh, Vaughn on today. Good stuff. So answer, well, let's take a short break, and then we'll bring her back on and get right to it. So you're listening to Behind Every Employer. We'll be right back. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Vaughn. We're just so excited to have you today. You know, our paths have crossed in direct and indirect ways. Uh, you know, I've really enjoyed your contributions to the Digital Us and Upskill America Committee that we sit on 
Uh, and uh, right there, I was like, this is someone that I want to talk to more. And it was right after that, I think your book came out and I'm like, OK, here we go. We're going to get to dive in um, even more and find out uh, what Vaughn's all about. Um, but I first want to just kind of have you tell our listeners about yourself. Uh, you've got a really compelling background that you describe so well in the book. And uh, but tell our listeners something about yourself. And then I want to hear uh, more about like Futura Health, but really about yourself and your experiences, both in the public sector and corporate America, please. Well, thank you, Anson. And thank you again, Jeff, uh, for welcoming me on the, onto this podcast. Well, you you had asked, like, tell, tell us about a little bit about yourself. And, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, Today's context of the Ukraine war actually reminds me a lot about my my upbringing, because mm. in 1975 my family escaped from Vietnam in the Vietnam War, and ever since then um, I've been so grateful that there um, there has been opportunity made available to me, uh, largely thanks to the education opportunities that I've gotten, and so I feel like in my last uh, few jobs. Uh, whether it was in workforce development with a, a big uh, major energy company or doing the uh, executive vice chancellor role with California Community Colleges or even now as CEO of Futuro Health uh, and working in healthcare, all of these roles have been about paying it forward, uh, paying forward the opportunity that I had when I was a child, um, newly um, arrived in the country um, that we're all in right now. Right. So, um, you know, this is what motivates me to come to work and, and do this workforce development uh, work. Fantastic. You know, I, I, I remembered in the book so much, too, something that came through related to your story um, is, you know, something about this entrepreneurial drive um, for change. Uh, and there's probably some elements there from like your experience, but definitely the pages of your book and kind of your perspective of really wrestling with some, you know, pretty, you know, uh, pretty, pretty solid uh, constraints and state governments and things like that. Those things don't bend very easily. Um, but I think that's something where you have this pure vision of really pushing forward for something different um, and, and really with the eye of the communities that you're serving. So tell us a little bit about Futura Health. It's a it's a very unique nonprofit specializing in healthcare and allied health jobs. And we're going to talk more about allied health, but just tell us how did Futura Health come about um, and, and a little bit about the history of it? You know, maybe I could just give a little bit of context. Um, yeah. You know, you talk about my background and, and, and how it motiv motivates me. Mm -hmm. And when I was at the energy company, um, I was actually right hand to the CEO. And I kept hearing from the operations that they could not find diverse quality candidates for these jobs that they had on the front lines. And these were jobs that paid so well. They were wow. 60K and up, you know, and with some tenure, you could break like $200,000 with less than a bachelor's degree. And having come from an immigrant community, I knew that there were communities out there who really want uh, to pursue these jobs if they were uh, only made uh, aware of them. And so um, I did a crazy thing, Anson and, and Jeff. Uh, I actually pitched to the CEO and the chief HR officer and said, you know, I know a better way of doing workforce development because you can have a quality and reliable talent pool that is diverse. So again, it's quality and diversity and a reliable talent pool all at one time, but we have to take it in a different direction. We have to do it in a different way. 
Because up to that point, what was happening was the company would go out and even do special special sessions with community-based organizations where they um, administered the company's pre-employment tests. And they were lucky to get one out of 30 individuals, one candidate out of 30 individuals wow. who would pass the written test. And that was before the drug test and before the background check. So the yield was so poor that the poor HR organization was extremely frustrated. And so um, knowing that, I said, well, you know, there's another way, but we're going to have to do this with the education institutions, specifically at that time, uh, the community colleges, because these jobs in particular that I'm talking about required more than a high school degree, but less than a bachelor degree. And so the, the primary engine would be the community colleges. Mm -hmm. And I have to tell you, I it was that having pitched that to the CHRO and, and the CEO, I, I have to say that was my moment of falling from grace because I was on the 29th floor, which was the executive <laughs> floor, which were, were all glass, you know, I had glass doors out, glass windows surrounding me with a beautiful view of the uh, San Francisco Bay Bridge. And then I fell to the second floor in HR where it was actually dark and, and dungeness with no resources around me. So what, what a contrast. But I just believe so strongly that these jobs were attractive jobs if, if only we uh, approach workforce development in a, in a different way. And I said about... Uh, proving that model, proving to the company that can, can be done. Now you talked, Anson, about uh, you know, tackling bureaucracy. I think in, in, in all cases, there are, you have to slay dragons, right? And it's not just limited to the, the public uh, sector. And even though I was for, for that period of time in the energy company, in HR, doing what the CHRO wanted and the CEO wanted, some of the toughest bureaucracies that we had to cut through was within HR itself because you were challenging existing practices um, uh, in order to bring um, you know, a different type of pipeline into the company. And um, not only that, but we also had other employees who, for example, I, I had a, a gentleman call me and he, he, he said, well, I'd like my son to get into, into this role. And I said, well, uh, tell me about your son these are very physical jobs. He yeah. said, well, my son uh, is wanting to go to art school and I want him to have this job instead and so that he could grow up like me. So you're dealing with a lot of uh, very complex dynamics within the company and having to push back against that. But again, if you want a reliable quality and diverse pipeline, it can be done and it can be done with some intentionality. And the play, the best news is that the playbooks exist. Mm -hmm. So once again, you know, here I am at, at, at Futuro Health, we are a nonprofit. Um, and we were founded be of, because of a similar conundrum, which was that here in the, the healthcare sector, um, we have uh, a, a shortage of a very severe shortage, not only at the doctor's level and the nurse's level, which, you know, which are occupations we all know around the dinner table, but in the allied health area. So 60% of the healthcare workforce across the country are these allied health roles. Um, and so um, you, uh, the same model that worked in the energy sector is now being applied to this sector. And I hope we get to talk uh, a, a little bit more about it as we 
uh, address what I would call a big structural shortage. When when numbers are big, like a shortage of 500,000 of these workers in California, 2.3 million of these workers across the country, we're talking about a structural shortage that no one organization can solve. Yeah, I agree. I, 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 and I love the focus on allied health. I mean, um, that's something I, I think just about everybody's familiar with. Uh, I want you to tell us a little bit when we say that term, like what are the job positions? Because I don't know if all of our listeners are familiar with allied health as a name. Um, but when you're talking about that, you know, it's definitely not your your RNs and your doctors, as you mentioned. But tell us about that front, that workforce, because I always think of the healthcare as definitely one of the occupational sectors where you really do have a very clear career path from really entry level jobs as orderlies and, um, and and people even in the commissary and in environmental services that can move up into patient care. But talk a little bit about those jobs in allied health that you're talking about where there's big vacancies and big opportunities. Sure, Anson. You know, uh Healthcare is unique in that it's highly credentialed in, in terms of movement in and movement upwards. And so uh, let's visualize the allied health jobs this way. If we were each uh, driving home, and hopefully this doesn't happen, but we got into a car accident. Everyone who touches us from the paramedic who drives up in the ambulance to the medical assistant who begins to check us in to the x-ray tech, uh, you know, basically everybody who touches us, minus the administrators, the doctors, and some types of nurses, the rest are allied health workers. And so again, 60% of healthcare and, and what we experience are these allied health workers. Um, there are also uh, roles that are non-patient facing, for example, uh, the health IT uh, the, the persons that are doing computer support, uh, that's uh, doing your telehealth, for example, if you're going to do a telehealth session, the ones that uh, troubleshoot your, your technology, right. there are so many roles in healthcare that, you know, they, they're little cities of their own. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, I, I want to de decode this a little bit more and, and turn to your book um, a little bit because there's just so much in there. Uh, I bought it off Amazon. I give you a rate, rate review. Uh, I think a lot of us, because I saw so many parallels. I've worked in state bureaucracies, I've worked in colleges, uh, and now I'm in private sector. And and you've got those same story in, in in very different ways. So I think for our listeners, one thing I would say is, you know, uh, the book itself and, um, uh, and and where Vaughn's coming from may be, you know, in some ways a healthcare story, but it's it's way broader than that. And uh, these are best practices and and kind of models that carry through to any sector and. Uh, and uh, that's what I think struck me about it for sure. But in your book, you I, you help really decode best practices in workforce development. And there's just so much that resonated me, me uh, for me there. Um, but this is definitely a space that I think our listeners grapple with. So in creating Futura Health as an organization, did you put into practice any of the solutions that you have in your book? Oh, absolutely. You know, um, uh, one of the concepts that I had is that you know solving these big uh, workforce shortages it's a team sport and it's not an individual sport yeah. so when i'm challenged with a question mark like oh how are we going to close the gap or or uh, solve the shortage of 500,000 allied health worker you know clearly the solution has to be something at scale right with attention to diversity but also agility because the pandemic really just did a curveball into this industry and, and shifted a lot of skill sets uh, quite quite a bit overnight. 
Um, so one of the things that is is playing out to be um, really part of our success from being able to go from zero to over 5,000 students serve in just the two years alone in the two pandemic years where yeah. basically people have been unenrolling uh, and and um, choosing not to attend higher education, really. I mean, we're losing so many students from higher education, especially adults. Yeah. Uh, it was extraordinary that we were able to bring uh, uh, adults back into education. So, uh, you know, our demographics, just so you have context, um, is average age is 30 with 80% diversity. And we broke 52% multilingual. And in healthcare, it's it's really important for health outcomes that you you reflect the communities uh, right. that are being served. So um, now, in order to do that, we decided that it was you know we had the option to become a higher education institution and, and get accredited. But the what we, what I I knew was that you know we wouldn't solve a problem of this scale by 25 seats at a time where you can do 25 seats, 25 seats, 25 seats. That's just not going to add up. So instead, what we did was we built an ecosystem of education partners. Clearly, they had to be quality, that the programs were quality, and instead um, enlisted those partners to deliver adult-friendly education. And we were able to ramp up, for example, like starting with 400 medical assistants, 1,200 medical assistants, to 2,200 medical assistants, because you're beginning to aggregate and pool the collective uh, capacity of the education providers. Um, this also leads me to, to think about the chapter, which is called the fire hose and the garden hose, yeah, if you remember that. Um, you know, coming from, edu uh, from, from the employer side, I think a, a big, big question mark for the employers are, is usually, well, why doesn't education deliver what I need? I mean, isn't that we pay the taxes for, right? And um, having spent a little bit of time on education, I have come to realize what, what makes them operate. And I call this the dilemma of the fire hose and the garden hose. So on the education side, they need to have enough students to fill up a class. And if you don't have enough students, you then have to cancel the class. So that usually means you have to get at least 15 to 25 students, right? I mean, 25 or more. On the employer side, it's more like a garden hose where you drip out one job, two job, three job at most at a time, right? You don't, you don't drip out 25 jobs right. to match the 25 uh, students that are coming out from a, a college at a time. So this is a dilemma because the two, basically the two systems don't work together. So a key strategy on the employer side is how do you begin to aggregate your posting so that you're, you can have the volume that, that is more interesting to match the volume of student production. Hmm. And that also meant we had to co-op other players in different ways. It, we could never add up that many jobs. So we began to look at our competitors. They had similar jobs. Could we pull their jobs? We also look at our supply chain. And because we were the big company, uh, we had a lot of smaller companies, for example, uh, like the tree trimmers, you know, who, who had similar aptitudes, but um, uh, they didn't have HR people to do workforce development, for example. So we began to add up their jobs along with our jobs, along with competitor jobs, and then you could get the volume. And then it became much more interesting to have ed to, for education to be responsive to us 
because then it was more worth their time. So that, you know, that's an example of decoding uh, what it means for, for education and business to play together. Yeah, Vaughn, it's, it's, I just want to jump in for a second because it's something that's so important. I think that we don't do it enough is really marry um, that employer and what those employers' needs are um, and, and really be teaching to that. Um, I was just telling um, Anson earlier that, you know, we have a, we own a college, a technical college, and we have a partnership with CVS. And CVS went in and built us a whole pharmacy so that our farm tech program, uh, the students are learning exactly what they need to run and work in a CVS uh, pharmacy. And those are the kind of things that you're giving them that skill set and that experience, uh, but you're really teaching them to the needs of the employer. And more of those marriages have to happen across the country. So I'm really glad that you're raising the spotlight on this because it's really important. I'm just curious, like what your secret sauce is, like how do you develop those relationships? Well, uh, let me let me give you the welding example. So our, our company um, used to, my, my energy company uh, employer, used to have a, a, a group of 120 welders. And they were state-of-the-art welders. They were not just, you, you know, your hobbyist welders. They were the ones where, if you imagine, like, these big pipelines, they had to hang upside down and be able to weld under the rain. So it, it was a very difficult task. Well, you know, through uh, uh, the last decade, the company didn't really need to hire a, a welders, but then all of a sudden, they there was an aging out of this population, and all the relationships with the colleges had atrophied, so those programs had shrunk. So, you know, usually when a company reaches out to a, uh, a college, it'll be somebody that they met at, for example, a rotary dinner or, or uh, um, you know, Elks Cub lunch, et cetera. But it's, sometimes, it's usually not the right person. So locating the right person, because you're looking for a college that only not, not is, is not only interested, but they have the competency and they have the capacity, right? right? So they have to have a faculty that's willing to do it and that they have the time to do it. And that's usually the starting point. So in a way, you have to shop around and find that. So we looked around all over the place, uh, presented some option, three options to uh, the supervisor, and he picked one. And of course, that curriculum still had its shortcoming because it was strong on welding, but not so much on the arc welding. Well, what do we do? Uh, two things. One was we uh, subsidized just a little bit the uh, some 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 funding to augment salary for the faculty. And then the second, we've invited all of the faculty to spend some time in our state-of-the-art training center, and they picked up that skill set. Mm -hmm. So from there, they were able to, to create a capstone uh, course in arc welding that not all students pursue, but it uh, for those that wanted to work with our company, they went through the regular welding program and then added that summer capstone and then they were day one ready um, at the end of that program for us to hire. So that's an example of how you build up the capacity of the, the education system to deliver exactly what you want. Yeah, Vaughn, yeah, I want to jump in one second because I, I, one of the things that just occurred to me too is, you know, we're talking about scalability and, um, you know, there's so many people in our country that um, don't have that base, those basic educational skills um, to get to that point. You know, you talked about the, 
then the percentage, and I believe it's almost like 67% of all jobs in the next five years will require more than a high school diploma, but less than college. But we can't get them to high school yet. We're like, we struggle in our country getting that literacy level up to a point where they get that HSC, that high school equivalency, so they can make the next move. And I'm wondering how you address that issue, because that's really a large pool of people in our country that fall below the, that, those literacy levels that get them into the, the high school level. Well, you know, Anson and Jeffrey, you live you live in this space, right? Yeah. Um, and what's been shown to be more effective is that adults learn much better when it's in context of work. Right. So, you know, I, I'll just give you an example. Um, when we were interested in rolling out digital skills for our maintenance crew, if you were to call the class digital skills 101 or whatever you want to call it computer skills 101 nobody would attend nobody would attend but if you called it back then we actually it was repackaged to be called fundamentals of electric vehicle maintenance <laughs> and those skills were embedded in that course everybody attended you see how that worked yeah. so it's a, maybe we have to put a little bit of um magic wrappers around it and that magic is about contextualizing it in in the in the context of jobs uh, it's great it's great that's a great example and, and it, that's exactly the kind of the gap that you're right uh, jeff and i just spend our careers kind of bridging uh, i wanted to key a little bit more on this kind of brokering relationships because You've done it. I've done it. Jeff's done it. You know, we, you know, we have a day where, you know, in the morning we're talking to businesses and they're all saying we need skills. We, we need workers. We need individuals. And then we go to, you know, our education partners and they're saying, you know, we need businesses to partnership and, and no one wants to hire our workers. We don't know how to connect with our businesses. And it's, it's all about what you're saying, which is broker, brokering these relationships. But something I wanted to kind of get your perceptions on. Um, we had a recent podcast go, uh, host, uh, Hal Din, who we both sit on the Digital Us Committee with, and uh, he really spoke about kind of biases that we bring to the table, knowingly or unknowingly, uh, in education uh, coming from the business side of the house and then coming from the community college side of the house. You know, his the, the world that, you know, we uncovered, Hal and I was you know, he's uh, kind of in the tech sector at a higher skill level and was talking about, you know, teaching, you know, technical skills and training for um, uh, skilled workers. And, you know, I brought up to him the idea that, you know, what about workers that can't even log into a computer? They don't have the, the skills, the literacy skills to even log in. Like, how do you address that? And, you know, he was stumped. You know, he's like, you know, I don't, what are you talking about? And of course, I said, go, you know, go back and ask your supervisors if they see those skills. Um, and sure enough, you know, he found, of course, the company was at, you know, these these skills were um, everywhere in terms of gaps. But so so is the bias of he's coming in from a, a real high tech pr perspective. He can't perceive how people wouldn't have skills to even log in, which, of course, we know is true. But I thought of it in terms of like some things you mentioned in, in Workforce Rx about perceptions. And this is like the perceptions businesses have of the public sector, particularly of community colleges, and then perceptions the public sector partners have of business. And you kind of describe this thing, this kind of the concept of managing the agility of the ecosystem. What's this, what is the ecosystem kind of in, in the perceptions that each player holds? 
And what do effective alliances do to bridge these perceptions or misconceptions? Well, you know, the, the, the foundation of effective workforce development is that um, each party comes to the table doing what it does best rather than doing everything. And I think this this is a kind of a big aha for, for many people. So employers often try to do everything, but instead its role in workforce development is to articulate what it needs in the hires, right? And then secondly, to make the hire. The second leg of workforce development is actually the, the community-based organizations or the workforce development partners. What are they good at? Well, they can actually do a better job at outreach to diverse communities and then screen and case manage them through the process than any of the other parties. So that's, that's their role, outreach, screen, and case manage. Then the third leg is actually the education institution, right? So the role of education is to close the gap between that population and where they are versus where the um, employers, um, you know, what the uh, employers have outlined. So let me, let, let me give you an example. So we were looking for utility workers when, back when I was at the energy company. And um, what we found was in the pre-employment testing, many of our candidates were actually failing the section on spatial reasoning. So the education institution, you know, as part of the three month kind of boot camp, what they did was they added a whole curriculum and it was a curriculum actually pulled from a secondary, basically, you know, from an eighth, uh, eighth grade uh, um, handbook um, on, you know, building of the blocks and how you visualize blocks. Um, so that's spatial reasoning. The, the other area that that candidates were struggling with was physical conditioning. So they actually... Uh, created a whole curriculum where every morning all the candidates would be playing soccer and doing all sorts of calisthenics to get them in shape for the physical part of the test. Um, so we were super grateful to the education institutions for doing that. Now, now let me tell you this, my, my favorite story, which is my fish story and why the effective workforce development actually needs all three parties. So we were, we did all three things, you know, we we work with the community to find the candidates. We put them through the an education program offered by our community colleges. But then there was a, 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 a candidate that our supervisors just fell in love with. His name was Aleki, a young man. And somehow when they went to the formal pre-employment testing, right, again, you're putting them uh, side by side no special process. So we did all this workforce development prep, but they went through the exact same hiring process everybody else did, right? So level playing field. Um, he got lost. He, he, he didn't end up on the list, the, the list on the other end. So because we were doing this, this intentional work, we actually asked the, um, the, the workforce board to look into why he uh, it got dropped from the list. So it turns out that when he was 15, he had gone fishing and he caught a fish that was too small. And he did not pay the fine associated with catching that fish. Mm. Well, that fine went to court and he did not show up in court. And eventually all of that turned into a felony. So Aleki had a felony on his record, one that he did not know was there. He would have been prohibited, um, precluded from employment at almost all my peer 
energy companies, and none of us would have taken the time to tell them anything other than thank you for your application. You know, you weren't selected this time, right? So um, fortunately, because we had this arrangement, we asked the the workforce board, or you can use a community-based organization, and they went. They helped him expunge the record, and we were able to hire him. Um, and the the, the story is happy. Uh, the other thing I wanted to note is on the education side, your education partner could have spent, you know, could have educated a lucky uh, with degrees over degrees, certificates and credentials over credential, but it wouldn't have helped him break into our into our energy company. Right. So you actually needed all three parties to work together because none of, none of us um, could do each other's role, but we could do what we could do best. And then we also braided our efforts and resources together to really develop that, again, diverse, quality, and reliable uh, workforce pipeline. Wow, I love that story. I'm sure it resonates with uh, Jeff. Um, you yeah, know, for sure. Yeah, you know, one thing that strikes me is, you know, part of the relationships is kind of letting go of control and relying on your partners but also kind of really doing kind of uh, some analysis amongst the, amongst the partners on, you know, what does each partner bring to the table? What do they do best? And staying in that lane and really excelling in that lane, knowing that the partners are going to pick up their pieces. Um, you know, your story of expunging records is one very familiar with me. When I was at the community college in San Antonio, um, we actually had a staff member because about, about 60%, uh, I was on the, west side of San Antonio in an empowerment zone, about 60% of our students had criminal background. Um, and and we, we would identify that immediately. And we had a, a workforce intermediary in town who would work with the courts and work with the judges and really help um, on these uh, individual cases. So we could provide more options um, early, knowing that this would maybe take weeks or months sometimes, if at all, but it, it helped us, you know, we didn't have to, I didn't have to do it. My college didn't have to do it. We had someone doing it, but it opened up access. And when you think of DEI and things, I'm like, here's where we're opening up access to get folks like this that would, you know, be relegated to a very small subset of jobs um, and find ways into some other parts of, uh, of the workforce, um, even into healthcare where they could work in, in coding from home and, we, you know, they could never work in a patient care setting necessarily for some of those felonies and convictions, but they could work in healthcare if that was their dream by doing coding or, or work in a lab and things like that. So um, I think that's something that's intelligence that people in the communities have. You've got to. And so part of the homework to me seems very apparent, but it's really, really knowing your workforce ecosystem in your community and having some conversations about who does what best and how to cobble that relationship together. And then I, I always found that you also needed kind of a, a cheerleader that kept the, the team going and kept people in their lane and, and made sure the logistics were happening because this is a complex ecosystem, as you mentioned, and it's got to be nurtured and kind of, you know, uh, um, Sustained. Well, you know, Henson, I, I I will be the first to admit, because I've been on the employer side and I am on the employer side, even at this nonprofit, that it's way easier to just transact for talent. And that's what you should do if the talent pool is out there. 
Now, if you are sitting around doing what I call, or, or many of us call, you know, the post and pray, and you're not exactly sure what's coming <laughs> in on the other side, right? That is a time when you actually have to put some intentionality and effort, and that's called workforce development. Now, on uh, to your point of building an ecosystem, you know, it's of course always easier um, to play by, you know, play ball by yourself than play with a team. Uh, as I mentioned before, I'll tell you, it it proved so helpful on our agility, even um, in the founding of Futura Health, because we launched and three months later, the pandemic hit. And my board came to me and said, you know what, the first uh, COVID surge is going to hit California in two and a half to three weeks can you help the frontline workforce get ready because they're not ready uh, to know how to use the PPE. They don't know how to use the uh, respiratory equipment. It's been a long time. It's like this wish list of what they wanted to do. And it was a two and a half week timeline for us to do that. So um, I think that would have been an impossible challenge had we not already begun to enlist and build an ecosystem of partners. So we, we ended up having one college partner of the of the many said, we'll create the curriculum if you, Batura Health, put it onto Canvas. And then we had um, uh, two other partners said, we're, we're going to get the mailing list together of all the people who are licensed in California and beyond. Anyway, the so it, and um, our Kaiser uh, employer representative said, we'll curate the curriculum. So basically between all of us, we were able to tick and tack and roll out in that two and a half weeks. And we ended up um, making that curriculum available to over 4,000 frontline health workers in 20 states. And that was two and a half weeks of very intensive work. But interestingly enough, that kind of demand and that those types of shifts are happening with so much more frequency and, and done unto us these days. So the question is, how, how do you build in agility? And the, the idea of an ecosystem is, again, different parties do different things best. And when you have an ecosystem, you can tap on and bring together the combinations of partners, a combination of expertise in order to get something done in ways that you can't do alone because no one has all the expertise and resources. Vaughn, it's so crazy you say that too because we all, often are so we're we're so reactive. Um, we you know we react to crisis, we react to things, but we really need to be thinking ahead and being really intentional about things. Um, I just lectured recently about the infrastructure bill, and you know one of the concerns is you know we have all these great jobs that may be coming down, but yet we don't have the skill with people with the skill sets really you know to fill all those positions. And um, I think we, we need to start thinking ahead sometimes and having this infrastructure in place so that we're ready, we're prepared uh, when the demand comes up. You know, we're really reactive. I was in your city, uh, Long Beach, um, over, over the week, and um, I was mindful of all the ships that we saw in the news with all the, the freighters uh, waiting to unload off your coast. And, and I was really very mindful about that. Like, you know, um, what are we doing now to, to think ahead about how we solve some of that structure problem in the United States and really, um, you know, get some of those jobs that really need to be in place then um, in place now so that we look to the future. So I really appreciate this conversation. I, I think our audience will as well, because I don't think we're, we don't think enough about it and the steps that it takes to, to really make that happen. 
Well, Jeff, you bring up a good point because there's an art to looking ahead, and especially in talent development and human development, it takes time, right? It takes time. It's not something that you switch the light on overnight, even if you could administer the talent over uh, the training overnight. Um, so, you know, in my book, one of the things I talk about is, is Singapore. The country of Singapore has has some really excellent practices, and and um, one of their uh, practice that they recommend is actually looking at technology leader, innovation leaders, and seeing how the innovation changes the workflow because the workflow change will inform the skill change, right? And they talk about um, one of the terminal, Terminal 5 in Singapore that they built that is completely automated. So there's nobody checking you in, nobody doing your baggage, nobody uh, sweeping the floors. It's entirely automated. And to watch that operation and reverse engineer the workflow and reverse engineer um, uh, the skill sets, one thing, for example, you could see is that it's um, the, the robots that are being deployed to sweep or clean the terminal is being done so through a central terminal. And so there are people watching those terminals, right? right. And watching the deployment. So then who are those individuals and what are their skill sets? Right. Uh, similar thing is, is happening in the future of care. We know that care is likely to move, shift out of the hospitals to move into the home because people recover better. But now when you think about it, well, what does that mean? Well, that means that you have to have the clinical skills to go into to go into care, as well as the interpersonal, right? But then all of a sudden, when you're in the home, now you have to deal with technology, troubleshooting somebody's technology, and then um, you're traipsing around. And there's a lot of cultural issues that you are going to have to navigate the the home. So, is this like a a, a Best Buy Geek Squad? Uh, right. combined with, you know, a set of clinical skills. And as you can imagine, they don't often come in the same person unless you are intentional about developing that pool. So, uh, again, you know, you look at these signals and you can actually extrapolate backwards. What does it uh, mean in terms of um, the skill sets that you have to begin seeding today? And then don't forget, you need to seed these skill sets into your education partners so that they begin the pipeline earlier rather than all of that burden falling on, on you, the employer. Right, right. I, I love that focus on kind of innovation in terms of just like, how does it change the perceptions of our jobs? You know, I, I'm in manufacturing, you know, which has you know been going through an automation, you know, uh, trend for decades now. Um, but it's really getting much more kind of accelerated, I think. And, you know, the big question I always hear from schools and, and trainers is like, what is the technology? How do we train on it? They're, and they're very, they're very focused on like the actual equipment and, and, I'm always thinking, you know, for these workers that have never worked with technology, part of the first phase is, you know, getting comfortable working around a robot or, you know, not being afraid of that technology. It's not about using it at all, but there's this kind of psychological phase you go through as you get introduced to a new, you know, uh, realm of, you know, innovation that'll make your work safer or more effective. Um, so, so definitely we see these things, you know, impacting our frontline workforce all the time. And, uh, you know, the digital, I think the pandemic has really thrust us into some new ways of thinking about, um, work, as you mentioned, as in the healthcare setting, 
as well as, of course, in the education sector. Um, I wanted to kind of pivot here and talk a little bit about um, the investments that employers themselves are making in education. We see real big investments from uh, big name companies in the education sector. But I want to begin before I get there and talk about something that you mentioned recently on a podcast. Uh, and it's something that um, is definitely uh, a tear I've been on for many years and, and, and really wanting to kind of think about what we can do about this. And it's really the challenge of remediation uh, in the community college system. Uh, you, meant, you were talking about California. Um, but in general, we know this is an area that um, uh, is just really, really impacting uh, higher education. And just to clarify for businesses that are listening, um, we're talking about remedial education uh, or developmental education. They call it different things in different states and, and communities. But these are essentially, you know, your high school graduates that are leaving high school or sometimes you're returning adults. But before they can really get into the training program of their choice to find their dream job, um, they become kind of uh, mired in uh, sometimes years of remediation, reading classes or writing classes or math classes to get to a level that is needed for them to be successful in those jobs. Um, and it, it's, it's super complex. It impacts a very large percentage of particularly community college students. I, I worked at a community college and it was well above 65 to 70% of our student population was in remediation. And uh, you mentioned, Vaughn, um, you know, in one of your podcasts that you guys in California had done a review and, and found that, you know, the chances of an individual that was uh, going into college, uh, getting out, if they had a year of, uh, of remedial classes was basically nil, you know. Um, and, and what it ends up resulting for our communities is massive amounts of student debt. Our, our, our student debt is $1.75 trillion right now. A lot of that is remedial. Um, and then students, in, 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 and they drop out with nothing. Um, at the college I was at, I remember in the early 2000s, we did um, an analysis. And, and if we saw a large number of our students that were in remedial math, writing, and reading, they had a, a, a less than 5% chance of going into a college credit gateway course, an entry course um, at our college. And, and so it is a massive problem. But when I see businesses making big investments, I wonder, like, do they know that maybe they're also investing in lots of remediation? You know, they may be wanting to see like an outcome soon. Um, but I think there's just so much work to be done in the space of analysis of skills and uh, expectations of what can be achieved in a possible period of time for workers. And I, I, I hate to you know, put a wet blanket on, on business investments in education would never do that. But it's about it also becoming an informed consumer of like where things are going and how we can kind of build better models in partnership with our schools to close that gap. But what's your advice to employers out there that are making these investments? They want to dive in, but we also want them to kind of be better informed about um, ways that they can also contribute to closing that skills gap. What's your advice there? Well, you know, again, if we focus on what we each do best, what's helpful for employers is if, um, for example, Amazon and web services, everybody wanted 
to hire those with cloud computing uh, skills yeah. um, to make their curriculum available or the you know the latest knowledge available through the education network then allows education to uh, generate that skill set uh, in, in a more real-time way uh, rather than the employers fall, it falling on the employers to to close that gap now in in this area of remediation I, I think uh, as you've said so well it, it's really bad news it's really bad news right the um, when I started with the California Community College we had a student success task force and it was very clear that the finding was if, if, if a student was in remediation for more than a year they would just never progress so it's um the strategies need to be evolved and i sure hope the adult uh, education community and coab you know will continue to push push that frontier mm -hmm. you know for 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 me in the work that i'm doing uh, knowing that as a background i'm actively seeking alternative solutions so how do you on-ramp adults for example into allied health careers when, for example, they don't have the confidence with with regards to their skills skill sets. So, um, where I invested was instead uh, a coursework called English Readiness for Allied Health. So it's it's building their confidence to ramp into um, the vocabulary that, that's needed for Allied Health career. And so that that you know that was again very specific to the, the, the job, the occupation, and so therefore much more motivating because again, you know, most adults don't have the, uh, the persistence uh, and time to, to be able to spend years and years in remediation. So um, what, what I would encourage is, you know, even as employers are finding different strategies that are effective with regards to remediation, to be able to share it with fellow employers and then share it with their broader ecosystem in the workforce and then asking, each of your partners in the workforce side, whether it's education or your community-based organization, to begin adopting that practice. Adopting that practice, right? And so um, just to really uh, make a point of this, I, I did three pilots in my first year uh, of workforce development ever, and that was with the energy company. Thank goodness I did more than one pilot because the first pilot was nothing to write home about. Uh, we only had a 55% completion rate um, and, you know, we scratched our head because the formula, why, why didn't it work? The second one went up to 76 because it, we had a slightly better case manager. Okay, so that, that improved things. But the third one was 100. So we went to the third one and said, well, what did you do? Well, they used a certain type of battery that was really relevant um, and easy to use. And when we saw that kind of result, we then went to all of our other colleges and other, uh, uh, other partners and said, we would like you to do exactly this process. And they said, no, 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 we don't, uh, we can't do that. And they gave their 10 reasons. So what we did was then we organized the meeting between them and their counterparts. So if it's education, then marry them with the education partner who did it right, right and have the conversation. Or if it's a workforce board who says they can't do it, then marry them with the workforce board that did it. Mm. And they learn from each other. That's how, that's how these systems work. And uh, over time, you know, we ended up running like 12 concurrent uh, programs at different colleges and they all uh, adopted same screening process 
and we were we were to the to the point i could i could tell that here's a roster of 27 students we would normally have two drop out because of life circumstances but i know 25 in 25 out see this is the reliable part of workforce development yeah i love that model i mean you're you're real eloquent in your book about um kind of the perils of pilots and and i love the models you present uh the whole the whole story of death by death by pilot and pilot fatigue, um, which, you know, I, I think we've all lived through, but I, I love that story of just how you kind of use the peer networking um, with other businesses to kind of match uh, what worked uh, with what didn't work and, and kept coming back to it. But that speed to market, I mean, we have all been in these pilots that, you know, you go in thinking this is going to be six weeks and end up two years later, you're still working on it. And uh, to, we don't have time for that, you know, and our workforce doesn't have time for that either. Well, uh, this has been such a great conversation. We're going to take a quick break here and I'm going to uh, turn it back over to Jeff here and then we're going to come back for our lightning round. You got it. We'll be right back. This is Behind Every Employer. player the lightning round round and nance and we love this part of the show because we get to do some call to action this is the point where we all get to chime in and give a little bit of something that's uh that we'd like the audience to go out there and do and um i'll, I'll kick us off because i think you guys have some good stuff i'll give you a second to get ready but uh, i want i want everyone to um to share their awesomeness so I came back from uh, Los An from Los Angeles and from California uh, earlier this week, and and went right back and started to host um, some educators uh, from the state of Iowa, and spent the last two days showing them around Philadelphia and Pennsylvania um, the awesomeness of our state and our education programs that we have going on, and we had a miraculous time. We're really seeing some great Title II programs, adult literacy programs. We met with some employers and some training partners. Gosh, we spent the morning today in a correctional institute seeing some incredible things that they're really doing um, in training and skilling and, and getting people ready for the, uh, for their next journey. So um, I want you to go out there and I want you to share your awesomeness. If you're doing a program somewhere in this country or you're an employer and you're, you've got some great employees and you got a program inside or outside of your pro, your your employment sector and, and you really want you want to get out there and you want to share it. Um, this is the way we build community. This is the way we build um, that structure that we were talking about in our discussion today is by sharing the things that work and convincing others that maybe they should be thinking about doing it a little bit differently. So my call to action today is uh, to share your awesomeness. Go out there and share the things that really strike you um, that are best practices or better practices in the work that you're doing in workforce development and education. There you go. I love that one, Jeff. And, and you know, all three of us are real active on social media. And, and you know, we're just so lucky to have easy ways to do and share our awesomeness out there. And I tell you what, you know, I, I just find it a treasure to see posts from teachers out there and from small programs uh, getting out there and sharing some fantastic stuff because we all learn from it. You know, I think the perspective people have is like, well, what does anybody care about my little tiny program out here, you know, in a rural area or in, in you know, not, not, not some flashy college or whatever it happens to be. 
but I'll tell you what, that's what we all, we all learn from this diversity of experience and getting out there. There's just so much innovation going. So I'm, I feel real fortunate that we've been kind of growing up professionally in this world of social media because we really get to experience a lot more so easily out there. My call to action kind of harkens back to where I started with Larry Hogan and his, uh, you know, challenge to look at the degree requirements for state jobs. But what I'd like to do is, you know, have have um, not only challenge our governors out there, but really uh, those institutions of higher education out there to look at your prerequisites for courses. Um, I, I just feel like having really been mired in that for years at a community college, there was so much work to do to really rethink. And, and what it means is uh, what Vaughn has been kind of uh, really showing us best practices in today, but it's, it's about talking to our business community and finding out what those skill needs really are, what those prerequisites should be, what does the business require, and really rethink some of that. Because when we look at remedial education, which we were just talking about before the break, um, and we will look at our available workforce, we've got to find every way to bring opportunity. And we can't put in artificial barriers that um, aren't even relevant in the marketplace. And we just see that over and over where our skill requirements in college uh, uh, technical programs sometimes are higher than those in our uh, business community for that will be hiring the graduates. So my call to action is to get out there um, if you're in higher ed and really take a look at those things and, and uh, call your assumptions into place and, and talk to the businesses to kind of revise those requirements um, uh, where it's possible. Vaughn, what is your call to action for our listeners? You've been such a great guest today. Well, um, you know, Anson and Jeff, you, you both pose great call to actions. Mine would be around the fact that we have so many possible futures and our listeners should know that the future is ours to choose. And if we don't like the current situation where 40% of American households have less than $400 in their bank account and that the wealth is so concentrated in, in just a few individuals, we need to rethink our economic and human infrastructure, especially as work gets more fragmented and gigified, you know, um, by looking at not only the training and education side of our infrastructure, but also to think about structures like worker co-ops or other types of structures where there's worker ownership and voice uh, being created inherent um, in those structures and that allow workers to continue to have assets like access to training, access to healthcare, access to retirement. Yeah. What are those structures? We, we need to rewrite or create what will work for us as we um, continue to evolve into the next economy. And that's the, the, the future I hope uh, many of our listeners will choose. Oh, I love it's, it. It's, it's just fun. so inspiring. Absolutely. Well, Vaughn, it's just been a joy to hear your insights. Um, please tell us how our listeners can connect with you. Uh, a little bit about your book and your podcast. Oh, please find me on uh, whatever podcast channel uh, station that you listen to, uh, Workforce Rx with Petura Health, Workforce Rx, and coincidentally, the same name on Amazon. So my book is called uh, Workfor Workforce Rx. Again, it's not uh, just about healthcare, but it's all the playbook, the proven strategies uh, for unsettled times. Um, Amazon or, you know, frankly, any bookstore that uh, where, where you normally go. Fantastic. Well, you're the doctor of workforce, the Workforce Rx. <laughs> we loved having you today. Um, and I want everybody to go out and check out behindeveryemployer.org 
our website and we really look forward to uh, our next podcast. So just everybody stay tuned and Jeff, take us out. You got it. Take care, everybody. They're listening to Behind Every Employer. You've been listening to the Behind Every Employer podcast with Anson Green and Jeffrey Abramowitz. This podcast is sponsored by the Coalition on Adult Basic Education. Check us out on coaid.org, on the Coaid YouTube channel, on Spotify, Facebook, or Instagram.